You're listening to the End of Sport podcast, a podcast about harm, labor, and inequality in capitalist sport with your hosts, Johanna Mellis, Nathan Kalman-Lamb, and Derek Silva. The End of Sport podcast is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, your left podcast community. Find us in great company with over 60 other shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. And as always, if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform and please leave us a five-star review as those always help us reach a wider audience. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this episode of The End of Sport. friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and today I have the immense pleasure of sharing a conversation with you that I recorded with uh, someone who has just a tremendous number of credentials, really, in the world of women's hockey, but is a current member of the executive of the PWHLPA, and that is Liz Knox. Now, we also had the tremendous pleasure of speaking to Liz Knox almost four years ago, right at the beginning of the run of the End of Sport podcast. And as I said to Liz, this was really one of the things that made me know that the End of Sport as a project I thought was going to work because we had such a delightful conversation. Liz provided such uh, a rich portrait of the world of women's professional hockey. And uh, so I wanted to talk to her again because... This is really an incredible moment for women's hockey. We see the PWHL absolutely burst onto the scene, burst onto our televisions, packing stadiums. Um, And it's it's quite remarkable to to see this happening after the conversation that we had almost four years ago. So I wanted to to talk to Liz about her reflections of, of how the PWHL has been built, what the collective agreement looks like what the experiences of being part of the PWHPA and the CWHL, how they built to this moment. Um, So that's what this conversation is about. But I also encourage you, please go back into the archive and look at one of our very first episodes with Liz, because I think that you'll find that to be really interesting as well, if you haven't listened to it yet. And now I toss it to our episode with Liz Knox. Liz Knox is a retired professional hockey goaltender, CWHL Clarkson Cup champion, CIS Broderick Trophy winner, CWHL All-Star captain, former co-chair of the CWHL PA, former member of the board of the PWHPA, and crucially and presently, member of the current executive committee of the PWHL PA. She is also co-host of the Noxie and CAC show. Now, this is our second conversation with Liz Knox. Our first was one of the very first episodes of The End of Sport. uh, And it was sort of like one of the key moments when I realized that this podcast project was going to be a success uh, because it was such a tremendous conversation. Um, So I'm really, really excited to have the chance to talk to Liz again. Liz, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. Uh, you listed off all those things. It's incredible because I still feel like I'm like 20 years old. So I don't know how I would have fit all that in, but <laughs> time exactly. sure flies. Exactly. That's right. I also feel like I'm 20 years old and I'm older than you. So yeah, it sure, it sure does. Um, 
Okay, so what we're going to do here in this conversation, uh, because I think it's really, it's a necessary um, kind of next installment to that previous conversation we had. And and again, I I would say for anyone who has not listened to our earlier conversation, you really should go back and do that. Um, But when we first talked, you know, women's professional hockey was in um, a really kind of crucial moment and a moment of indeterminacy where we really didn't know what was going to happen next. And Liz sort of filled us in on how we got to that point and what the present moment was and what the future looked like. And we kind of are in the future now. So a big part of what we're going to do here is uh, is unpack what the what the future has become in women's hockey. But before we get there, I do think for those who don't know, don't have the context, haven't heard before, I want to give a, maybe a little bit of background to sort of explain why it's so important, the development of the new professional women's hockey league, the PWHL, why that is such an important development. So... In our first conversation, you spoke about how difficult the conditions were in the now defunct CWHL, Canadian Women's Hockey League. For those who don't know, can you remind us just a little bit how challenging it was to survive and earn a living as a professional women's hockey player in that league? Yeah, I'll try to give like a, a quick snapshot. And anybody who's kind of listened to me talk about my career as a you know post collegiate athlete will know the, some of these stories. But um, at the time, just for reference, I mean, I was working. I, I've always had a full time job outside of playing hockey. So, um, you know, at the time the CWHL when we last talked, I was in construction and I was a volunteer firefighter on the side or paid on call firefighter on the side. And, um, of course, you know, still going to the gym, trying to keep the fitness level up for hockey. So just to balance your, your day-to-day schedule. I mean, I was up, you know, five, five thirty in the morning, going to work for 10 to 12 hours, coming home, squeezing a seven minute nap in, getting a bite to eat, going to practice, and then kind of alternating that schedule between practice and and lifting or, or going to the gym. So it made for a very busy schedule. There was no such time as rest. It was just squeeze everything in, try to get a good meal in you when you had five seconds to do so. Um, so like physically and mentally on on the athlete, it was it was difficult. But I think really when the CWHL folded, we kind of redirected the focus, not necessarily on the personal um, kind of experience of how we balance our time, but just really looking at the lack of resources that we had as athletes playing in what we were calling professional women's hockey. So um, in my first year in the CWHL, like I, I, I was, you know, kind of tricked almost into paying for my own equipment. Um, we didn't have sticks provided to us. Uh, you know, travel on the road was, was covered, but often we didn't have per diem money to, you know, buy meals on the road. So we're out of pocket for that stuff. There was no um, commuting expenses covered. Um, even things, simple things that probably most hockey players take for granted if they've played at an elite level, but we didn't have like sock tape or stick tape, you know, <laughs> we're, we're passing around uh, roles that the national team girls would bring back from camp. And often a lot of our players were playing with sticks of, of their national team teammates who, you know, they've upgraded their stick. They've got, you know, two or three at home and they just pass those off. So it's just a real lack of resources and um, playing in community arenas. This all kind of contributed to the conversation around, um, you know, the the professionalization of women's hockey and um, kind of the weight that we felt to to make a difference in the moment when the CWHL folded. 
Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And, and those stories are, I mean, I, I, cause I, I was listening again to our earlier conversation and what, what I noticed about myself was I was just like, my jaw was on the floor, you know, you, you were telling us sort of what, what you had experienced that I, I, I couldn't believe it. And I, I still, you know, struggle to believe what you had to go through during that time, which included, by the way, having to travel to China um, under these conditions where, you know, it wasn't like a, a, a really exciting trip where you got to experience China. It was like these are a work trip to do hockey games in China with no time to recover, losing like the the time and your shifts with your with your jobs that you had, right, to support yourselves. So, so it was like threatening your very employment in those positions, right? And all of that yeah. you had no control over, you explained to us, because you folks didn't have like the, the league had not consulted with players at all before making that kind of decision. Yeah, that was really the catalyst to my, my decision to join the the players association of the CWHL, which for the record was not an actual union. It was just um, a space for players to put their input in and, you know, we would give that feedback back to the league. But at the end of the day, we had no leverage to really, you know, negotiate for better conditions. It was just somewhere that we could, basically complain and often our complaints fall on deaf ears. But to your point, um, when the team, when the league added teams from China, you know, basically to financially save or salvage the league, um, they didn't consult the players. And as somebody who had two full-time, you know, two jobs at the time, I just thought how, like, that's, that's insane to me. It kind of, it really struck me. And maybe it was because I was in, you know, more of a space where the workers unions are more developed, but I was like, how can they just, expect me to take 10 days off of my job that pays my bills and go overseas to a different country. And, you know, we played four games in seven days and then we had the two travel days on the end of that. Um, it was, I mean, it was, it was insane to me. I was like, how did nobody ask us about this? You know? And, um, and that was just my situation. My teammates, you know, some of the girls used their, their sick leave from work. Um, some of them had to use their vacation days and these are all, things that as employees of our, the companies that pay our bills, like we're entitled to that time off. Right. So it kind of struck me as a moment where I was like, wow, we have no rights as employees or workers in this league. And that, and that brings us to the next part of the story, right? Because once the CWHL folded, you were basically in this position, you and I mean, all of you, all, all the, all the athletes who uh, worked in that league, you had the choice of potentially joining, uh, what was at the time like the competing NWHL or, and I think that this was a really cr- a fascinating part of the story, right? Because my understanding was so many of you felt that the problems that you f- experienced in the CWHL, they were replicated exactly in the NWHL. And what you rightly demanded basically was that professional athletes in women's hockey deserve to have the kind of working conditions that any professional workers and professional athletes deserve, no matter what the kind of league or the site of labor was. And when you looked south at the NWHL, you saw just the replication of the same kind of exploitative, precarious, painful and difficult model that you had just experienced and had just failed. And you didn't want to do that again. And that's where the PWHA, excuse me, the the acronyms are so difficult. (laughs) The (laughs) PWHPA came from. Um, Is that right? Was that a fair appraisal? Absolutely. Yeah. It was, um, you know, the the NWHL time, they had higher salaries than what we were seeing in the CWHL. The CWHL was basically a stipend before uh, the league folded. 
Um, so yeah, they were paying more money and, and to the outsider, it was like, well, like, there's your answer. One league, you guys go there, make some money. This is what you've always dreamed of. But for the, you know, in our, our initial year of the PWHPA, we had, I think close to 250 athletes sign, uh, kind of like our letter of intent. I just said, you know what, it's, it's not about the money. It's not about, um, you know, making X number of dollars and then calling ourselves professional. Like, there was no functioning legal union of that league. It was very similar to what the CWHL had, which is a board of, of players and former players who had opinions, but really no leverage. Um, there's nothing that protected them uh, from decisions that the league could or could not make. It, there was just so many red flags. And, and I, you know, it was all new to all of us as players because um, fortunately, like we, we leaned heavily on, you know, the Hillary Knights, the Kettle Coin Schofields who have great experiences in the professional sports world outside of women's hockey. But it's, it's new to us to think like, oh, we, we actually deserve to have, you know, a say in what our labor looks like. And, um, whether we knew it or not at the time, forming the PWHPA was a labor movement in which, you know, we basically said, we're going to remove our work. And if it's a value to, you know, the sports world, which we believed it was, then somewhere along the way, we're going to find a solution. And at the time, it just wasn't the NWHL. Yeah. So I, w- I want you to, to share a little bit more with this, because when we last talked to you, um, you know, you had formed the PWHPA and you kind of ha- you laid out for us your, your this vision of it um, and, and what the, the kind of the logic was. And it was amazing. It was kind of, in a way, a revolutionary logic, because uh, what we saw was you know, essentially a labor action, but without an employer, right? In this case, because you didn't have a league, there wasn't capital directly that you were um, negotiating with, right? But nonetheless, you were fundamentally withdrawing your labor. You were withdrawing your potential labor from the NWHL. It was very clear that the people who were part of your movement were um, some of the most elite athletes in your sport. And I think that's really crucial to understand because what makes value in the world of professional sport, right? The thing that is sold, the commodity is what's called a commodity spectacle, right? The the show in a way that you put on. That's the thing that is being sold to fans, uh, whether mm-hmm. in the stadium or on television or wherever else, right? That's where the value is produced. But what makes it valuable, what makes fans willing to make those investments, and there are, there are a lot of things, but the most fundamental thing is the exceptional quality of that athletic labor and the spectacle it can produce, right? Because random <laughs> people like me simply cannot produce the commodity spectacle that has value. I don't play well enough, right? In order to make people care enough to want to watch, right? That's just a fact. So it requires yeah. the exceptional quality of the labor. And so that's why your movement was so powerful because you were, we're talking about the elite, some of the, and I'm not trying to make, this is not about judging people or making comparisons or disparagements, but many of the top professional hockey players in the world were part of your movement. Well, it was, it's really interesting now. Again, a lot of this insight that I have about what the PWHPA was and what we did has come in hindsight as I've learned more through this whole process about um, labor rights. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it took because up until that point, the largest stages that we had seen women's hockey on when we learn the names of these athletes and see their faces and see them in commercials was the Olympics. So naturally, by having those athletes in our pool of PWHPA players, it's like, okay, they're the biggest names. 
they're not playing in this league. And it, it was really almost ironic to see so much narrative around, well, how selfish are they? Like how, like that's, you guys are so entitled and selfish and you should just, you owe it to the NWHL to go play there. Like these are athletes who have worked, you know, their butts off for their entire life to gain an inch of, you know, respect or notoriety in the sports world. And the narrative was like, they're selfish. They owe it to us or to, to the leagues or to the fans to be, to just be complacent and go to this league that they don't believe is, is worthy of their labor. So that was, that's my one pool of thought is absolutely. There was so much pressure on those Olympic stars, um, you know, to, to basically conform to what the only thing that we knew was available in women's hockey. How dare they take a stand for their own labor, which is, you know, as you, as the words are coming out of my mouth, I'm like, this is, it's hard to it's hard to think about, but on the other side of that, a bulk of those players were also players just like me, which is like I'm not a household name. Nobody cares who I am. I'm working a full time job, and I'm doing it because I know that I don't want the next girl in line to have to go through what I went through. So it was this very like harmonious balance of and like a tremendous amount of respect between. You know, we always say the national team, the non-national team girls, but like, I remember being in a locker room with Laura Stacy, and, you know, we're going into playoffs and people are tired. We're, we're tired. <laughs> like you're playing now back-to-back games. The turnaround is quicker and we're still working our 40 to 60 hours a week. Like we are exhausted. And, you know, she said something in the locker room, like, I just appreciate you guys so much because without those players, the Olympic athletes had nowhere to develop. You know, without the players who, you know, did grind through those jobs and and carried two or three at a time so that they could just keep playing the game that they loved. I think inherently in in all of our players, there was something about this movement that was to leave the game better than we found it. We always said that, but the non-national team player did it knowing that they also wouldn't be on the cover of the magazine for doing it. So I think you know, as the story develops, I just, I, I always try to tip my hat to the teammates I had in those moments. A lot of the girls, when the CWHL folded, were kind of ready to be done playing, you know, maybe, maybe a year or two earlier than they would have thought, but it's like, ah, it's okay. I have my career. I have plans to have a family. I definitely can't do all three of those at the same time. Um, so I was like, CW folds. Well, that kind of hurts, but uh, I'll just move on with my life. But instead, they were like, you know what? This is our opportunity to really make an impact. And they kept playing in the PWHPA, which offered them no promise of, of their security in a future league, but offered them the promise that we would make a difference. And I think that's like one of the more powerful kind of moments of the whole movement. Oh my God, no. I mean, what you were describing is like the very essence of solidarity, right? I mean, that's, that's like, the, yeah. that's the only word that comes to mind when I, when I hear what you're saying from solidarity from these sort of elite athletes, solidarity from, um, as you say, the, the kind of the, the regular athletes who are also part of professional sport, right? We have, I mean, everyone's an elite athlete, but what I mean, it's like the superstars. We always have superstars in professional sport. And then we have like the vast majority of the people who are professional athletes who are superstars compared to almost everyone else who plays sport, um, but not quite at the caliber of the elite of the elite. Uh, and it's amazing to see like a, a union, a labor movement requires everyone. It requires that solidarity. And I mean, you're, you're painting a picture of basically like an almost perfect, um, 
expression of solidarity. I'm, I'm a bit curious then, I mean, but we're going to get very soon to the how the PWHL emerges and how you understand it as emerging from this this history that you're telling us. But I would love to know just about from your own experiences and conversations with others who participated, the, the tour that the PWHPA put on is a really fascinating thing because this is a moment where you were offering the kind of, in a way, commodity spectacle that I described, but not um, through the kind of typical relationship with capital that exists in professional sport, which is to say that there is a kind of like a capitalist ownership group that owns the business, right? And then has a relationship with the players who are actually the workers. And then so if there's a unionized context, you have to negotiate, right? A, a collective agreement, you have to negotiate salaries and so forth. But the people who, to whom the, the capital accrues are the business, not the players. So there is a way in which all of professional sport, I would argue, is a, at least somewhat alienated form of labor because the athlete does not control the conditions of their labor. They don't control the output. Mm-hmm. They don't control any of that, right? Um, but what happens in a moment like your tour is that you actually did have that control, right? You were the ones putting on the tour. You were the ones put playing the games. It was all you. And I'm curious uh, what that felt like. If that felt different than professional sport in other contexts, well, I, I will say the the very first Secret Dream Gap tour was here in Toronto, and I went to the game, and like it almost makes me emotional now thinking about it because we had two teams, like we had two sets of jerseys, so every player had a navy Adidas practice jersey and a white Adidas practice jersey with their name bar and their traditional number, the the, the number that they like played in last year and we're mixed rosters. It is just an absolute, when I look back at it, is a gong show. Okay. <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah. a glorified scrimmage. We had no, but to your point, we had no idea what we were doing. We were, a, you know, a collection of players who just were, we're trying to do something. We're trying to do something different, draw attention, you know, make our point that what we have right now is not good enough. Um, and, we did, we did control what happened. I mean, I'll never forget um, when we interviewed, when we asked Jaina Hefford to come on as our, our director of operations, she said, do the players want me? Like th- this was her only concern. Do the players want me there? Because this is your movement. And it was a, a resounding, yes, we want you. We believe that you're capable and we believe that you understand, you know, what kind of where we're coming from. So boom, she's in. And then we, I don't even know if I can say higher because I don't think we paid anybody all that much money, but we bring on about five people to run the entire secret dream gap tour. And we have, we have great advisors. We have great input from, from, you know, kind of industry leaders, but we kept our circle very small and we did so intentionally. Like these players had had their trust broken by the model that you're explaining that, that commercialized model um, where they have no say in their labor. So you know, after every every kind of couple months, definitely at the end of each season, uh, we ran player surveys. What do you want? Like, what do you think of this idea? What do you think of that idea? And it just slowly, year after year, we were able to grow. And the money that we were making was going into our, you know, if you could imagine 250 women sharing a bank account of like, okay, now we can survive the next year on this. And I tip my hat huge kudos to Chelsea Purcell because she ran our sponsorship. She works for the league now, but I, we just would have never 
I don't know how we would have operated without her bringing in the kind of sponsorship dollars that, you know, Secret and uh, Budweiser. We had some uh, amazing sponsors that really, they captured, they understood what we were capturing in the purpose of our, of our mission. So um, it couldn't have happened without her and, and the team that we hired out there, but yeah, it was, um, it was, it was interesting to be new to it and also having the liberty to mold and shape what we wanted. And then on the ice, I mean, it did make for fun hockey because the girls were playing kind of carefree, you know, like yeah, exactly. once you're, once you're identified, it, the, the idea was let's go to these towns, these cities, let's put a fun product on the ice you know, try your between the leg moves, try your, you know, just give them something to enjoy, get, get, give them a space where they feel welcome and they want to enjoy it and, and leave them feeling like, wow, I wish I could watch that every day. That was our, that was our only mission, get eyes on the game and, and, you know, hopefully bring some joy back to women's hockey, which was, yeah, at the time, you know, <laughs> large, a lot of, a lot of the narrative was just about the drama and, and everything else. So it was, yeah, it was quite the experience. <laughs> we didn't really know what we were getting into, but we figured it out along the way. Yeah. Well, and you really figured it out because now, and this is, so this is what we have to get to. Now we have the PWHL. How did that come to be? Um, and did you learn anything from the experiences of women in other professional sports? Obviously, what did you learn from your own history that helped build this league, but just, just tell us a story. How did the PWHL come to be? Yeah. So to cut a very long story, somewhat shorter, um, I believe it, you know, within kind of six to eight months of the PWHPA forming, um, through Kendall coin Schofield, who had a relationship with Billie Jean King enterprises, we brought on Alana Kloss and Billie Jean King as advisors to our group. Um, and that was really important for us, uh, because of Billie Jean's battle of the sexes. Um, you know, she, her message to us was, you know, you have to stick together. Number one, you have to stick together. And number two, you know, get the whole idea of you'll never be as fast as the NHL. You'll never be as big as the NHL, never shoot the puck as hard as the NHL. She's like that. Sure. Let's accept that. We won't, but we can be as entertaining as the NHL if given the opportunity. So that was kind of, she was really the person who kept us on the straight and narrow. And then, um, you know, throw into the whole mix, a global pandemic, which, uh, yeah, obviously sure. took our, our tour for a little bit of a twist. Um, Hindsight, I mean, it, it was in a way a good thing because all of a sudden the the sports industry, is particularly the hockey industry, changed a little bit. Where we saw NHL teams playing in front of zero fans, and it does give you an appreciation for what fans bring to the experience of those professional games. Um, so I think that was that was kind of an interesting twist. But long story short, through the COVID years. Um, I think initially when we formed the PWHPA, we were dreaming of a league. Again, we're operating in a space that we only know what we know and, and what we knew is the NHL. So of course we thought, um, you know, maybe the NHL would be interested in, in kind of stepping up to the plate. And the narrative from their side was always, if there was a gap in women's hockey, we would fill the void. And we believe that we were creating that gap. Um, 
you know, they had other plans. And like I said, the global pandemic affected the sports industry as, as much as, you know, any other industry in the world. So I think we kind of started to realize the NHL was not going to um, take on as big of a role as we had hoped. And we also realized that that was not necessarily a bad thing for us. Um, you know, for a sport that has left so many women feeling on the outside of it, what a great opportunity for us to to take hold and make this space something that we would have loved to walk into, right? Um, and and all the intersections that that come along with that. So it ended up being a good thing in the end. And Billie Jean King, um, you know, through her networks, we, we had negotiated, we had talked to a couple of different groups. You know, this is kind of towards the tail end of the PWHPA when we're really, um, we had created a business model with the help of Deloitte. Um, we brought on a law team. Oh, sorry. My puppy's barking, <laughs> no um, brought on, brought on a legal team, um, you know, kind of helped us figure out our way through the, the legal business side of, of what forming a union would look like. And then it was finding the right ownership group and, um, you know, Mark Walter, um, and Kimber Walter, his wife. And the LA Dodgers, I mean, this was a group that not only did they want a union to be formed before they kind of like really bought in, but they encouraged it. Like they were like, the only way this is going to work to satisfy the players is if you guys have a voice from day one and and you help steer the ship. So um, it, it was a long winding journey to get there. And even once we had, you know, kind of, signed the letter of intent with them and um, Stan Kasten came out to the PWHPA event uh, in California and talked to the players. There are still just so many unknowns. Um, you know, <laughs> they had to create a league virtually within six months um, from ground zero. It's, it's an incredible task no that kidding. they took on. My God. And yeah, I mean, the players, so many questions. And again, I, I mean, we, they're still largely distrustful mm-hmm. for a group of players that stuck together as long as we did. Um, I had many conversations players, you know, is this actually going to happen? Like, you know, I, th- they were running out of patience and I, and I totally understand. I'm, I'm the, one of the more exhausting parts of, of being on the executive for the PWHPA was just trying to keep players emotionally bought in that, we're doing the right things. We're getting the right eyes on the product. Like this, this is going in the right direction when their day-to-day life, I'm sure felt like we haven't done anything. Yeah, no, I, I can't imagine how, how difficult that would have been for them. Um, it, it's such a testament to all of you that you stuck together in the way that you've described. So now what we have, and I, I want to kind of get into a little bit into the nitty gritty of this. So, because this is, this is, this has been your role, right? On the executive of the, of the union. In advance of the season, in the inaugural season, the PWHLPA negotiated a collective agreement with the league. And I just want to mention a couple provisions here, but I really want to get into this with you. But just like some of the things that are that, that really stand out here, right, are that um, provisions include a $55,000 average salary per team, $35,000 minimum salary, and if I understand this correctly, a minimum of six. plus salaries on each team. 
These mm-hmm. numbers are, I think, in the ballpark of the NWSL, the soccer league, if perhaps just a little bit lower. And I would note that the NWSL and WNBA have salary caps, which the PWHL does not. And maybe that's something you want to speak to. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the duration of this agreement, how difficult it was to negotiate, and how you feel it compares to those other leagues, those kind of comparative leagues like the NWSL and the WNBA? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we we leaned heavily on um, the collective bargaining agreements of those leagues in our negotiations. Uh, the The difficult thing, I think, uh, for our side of the table was these are leagues that have proven products for the last, you know, eight to 10 years. Yeah. So a lot easier for them to justify salaries when they know that they're, you know, selling tickets and selling merch and, and you know, their revenue is X. Uh, so their expenses can be why. <laughs> so you can imagine sitting in a boardroom with, uh, you know, folks who run the Los Angeles Dodgers among other professional sports teams and telling them, oh no, we're worth that though. Like we're, we're worth this money. Well, they don't know that they're brand new to women's hockey. Um, frankly, you know, they don't know any of our players outside of Hillary Knight, Marie Philippe Poulin, uh, because those are the two players they see at every Olympics. Um, they're, they're the average consumer, uh, you know, who's, who's not in the, the women's hockey bubble. So to start with those numbers, um, you know, we've, we've faced criticism for sure in, in social media and stuff like that, but we're starting at year one, uh, where a lot of these leagues are at year eight or 10. So that's a really good spot for us to be in. And of course there's lots of costs overhead, um, you know, playing hockey that differ from a sport like basketball or soccer. Um, so yeah, all that to say, we, we definitely leaned heavily on the NWSL and the WNBA on their collective bargaining agreements. Um, you know, we also use the NBA, we use the MLB, uh, we use the NHL. Um, I think, you know, it, it just made sense for us to, to lean on, on the work that had been done before us. And, it was a good benchmark, particularly for, for the women's leagues, that we wanted to set the precedent that if we're going to be a professional women's hockey league, um, we're not going to step back from any of the work that's been done by the women before us. Um, you know, let's not let's keep the keep the moving the needle forward, not just for ourselves, but for them as well. And, you know, it that's how the sports world works. I mean, if you see maternity leave go to go to one league well we're not taking any less than that that that's the standard now that's the gold standard you guys want to call yourselves professional this is where we're at so it was a it was quite the learning experience for sure but uh, like i said very lucky to have those leagues who had had already achieved so much in their time and then in terms of the the term of the deal um you know it's it's really funny because uh again critics will say eight years is too long. Um, you know, I'll go on the record. The league wanted 10 years. So we're happy to nudge them down from that. And on our side of things as, as players, I mean, there was something actually comforting about the idea that this investor group wanted to be around for 10 years. Help, like, they were basically asking us, help us plan for 10 years. Give us, you know, give us 10 years to, to make this Thing really fly. And for a lot of players who had jumped league to league, seen a lot of leagues fold, had so much uncertainty in our playing careers, um, there was something comforting about the idea that they wanted a long deal. 
obviously with the, the understanding that that meant some of the items that we've locked into our CBA, you know, they may be locked in. Um, fortunately, since those conversations, the league is very open. I mean, they're, we're already revisiting things in the CBA that in theory in the boardroom made sense. And now that we're seeing them in practice, it's like, okay, we're going to have to revisit that for year two. Yeah. Interesting. And, and I want to say, cause I totally get where you're coming from when you sort of respond to like criticism, whatever that may be, um, is that people sometimes really lose sight of the fact that when we're talking about labor negotiations, collective bargaining and so forth, this isn't a situation where, um, you know, you put forth the most compelling argument and you win. So it's all about your strategy. Other, No, it all, it's, Everything has to do with power and with leverage, right? That's that's the entire story, but it's a story that's masked because right, you don't speak in the language of power and leverage at the bargaining table. You speak in the language of dollars and cents and years and all that stuff, right? But what's underneath it, what influences who is willing to accept what are the actual power dynamics that are underneath the surface. And the other thing is that that mean, or what that means, one thing, one thing that that means is that you're never getting the deal you want to have, right? You're getting the deal that you're able to settle on, right? But it's it's never going to be your 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 um, your most desired outcome. So that's a really important point to keep in mind. And the other thing is, given that you don't get everything that you want, the beautiful thing about the collective bargaining process from the standpoint of labor, if we compare it to contexts where labor does not have collective bargaining rights not compared to sort of socialist utopia where workers have maximum rights over their labor, just to be clear, but comparing it to situations where workers do not have rights over their labor is that you get to make the compromises for yourself, right, at the bargaining table. And this is one thing I really think about in the context of college sport, because I'm always thinking about labor in college sport. And one reason I reject models like a bill of rights for athletes and things of that nature, sort of paternalistic things offered from above, is at the end of the day, when you are talking about your own working conditions, you may not get the ideal outcome you want, but you should be able to negotiate among your peers. You should talk about it and say, listen, if I have to prioritize A over B, what is the thing that matters most to me? What can I live with giving up? It's my own choice. And I've made a decision based on my willingness to engage in a labor action, everything else. I can live with this thing I negotiated for myself, right? That's that, a huge difference. That is like, you are hitting the nail on the head and um, you know, when we're at the bargaining table, we had, we had the great, um, you know, kind of leadership of Susan Davis. She was our negotiation lawyer and she's, you know, worked out FDNY contracts and nurses contracts and she was working for Broadway. And so she's, she's been in her fair share of negotiations, but I give her a ton of credit. She, she just let the players talk because that was the, that was the leverage that we had was this has been our experience. And if you want your players to be happy, just like you're saying, okay, what, what can we compromise? And what are certain things that absolutely not like, and, and I give a ton of credit, especially to Kendall, like she was tough as nails in those negotiations. Like I, it was, it was inspiring to see, honestly, to see, you know, a person, especially for stature, you know, kind of going not not the tallest, most intimidating a uh, uh, person on the ice, but um, you know, to see her stand up to um, you know this very powerful group of men and just say no, that we're not accepting that, um, knowing that you know this could be basically the end of a deal, but it, it was just 
you know, there are certain things that were so important to the players and such benchmarks for them um, that they, you know, we fought for, for, for those players. And then, yeah, of course you have to compromise somewhere. If, 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 like you say, if option A is the most important thing to you, then somewhere down the line, um, the league is going to need something back that they also want. Okay. That, that's, that's a perfect sort of segue then into what are you proudest of having earned in the struggle that you just described in this agreement? And what are the areas where you had to compromise most? And like, if you're looking eight years down the road, those are the things you absolutely want to fight to improve. Um, oh gosh, this is taking me back now. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think, well, first of all, I'm, I'm most proud of, um, actually, I'm going to say that I, I I'm happy with the fact that the league came in with their understanding of what professional sports was like and how much they were understanding of this very simple things that we thought we were going to have to fight harder for. I'll give some examples, um, pre and post game meals, having a player access, um, you know, doorway to the rink, having our own locker room, having strength conditioning coaches, physiotherapists, doctors, having paramedics on scene for games. Like the, the, those things that have just been taken for granted in professional sports. I, I I personally thought we were going to have to fight harder for them because I, I thought this league is just going to, they're, you know, I'm, I'm going a little bit jaded. I thought they're just going to want to put us through the ringer and make their millions and let us scrape by on the next, you know, the shoestring budget that they give us, which is just, it, that was, that was our experience. That, that, that was genuinely what the only thing we had ever known. So, uh, I remember one time, you know, in the negotiation saying, you know, our, our pre and post game meals, they need to be reviewed by a dietitian who understands the athletes and understands, you know, um, macros and, and getting the right proteins in us and Stan casting across the table is like, yeah, obviously. Like he was just like, <laughs> okay, duh, okay. you know, cause he was like, and he said in the meeting, he's like, you are our product. Like we need to treat you guys well so you can keep performing so we can keep selling tickets so we can, you know, we can make money, but we can't make money if you guys are eating you know, gas station sandwiches after the game. And, and that's, that's the one thing. So all those little things around player experience, they, the league was like, you know, they were the gold standard and they've, they've showed that. Um, of course, there's been hiccups, but they've been quick to fix it. And, and that's amazing. The thing I think I'm most proud of that um, the negotiating uh, committee really fought for was that players reserve their NIL rights. Um, you know, at, at different points in the, in the negotiations, the league was looking to basically like, how can we, how can we sell the most things? How can we sell the most, um, you know, whether it's commercials, sponsorship, endorsements, whatever. And it, some of the proposals would have really compromised the individual player's ability to use her name, image, likeness. And so that was one thing that, Absolutely not. Um, you know, this is this is a new conversation to me. NIL rights were not even a that wasn't even an acronym when I was playing professional sports, let alone college sports. But the NCAA athletes now coming out of university, I mean, they know how to utilize their NILs and they're entitled to that. I mean, if you build a brand, you're entitled to make your own money on it. So that was something that um, you know, especially as women we were not willing to compromise. 
we're not going to set the next generation up to come out of NCAA and then have to, you know, essentially turn over their NIL rights. Um, that was one thing that we, we fought really hard for. And this is kind of like an adjacent story to that, but a little bit lighter. Um, in the, when we were looking at, uh, at the NBA, uh, collective bargaining agreement, they actually have a line in there that says, you know, they basically, they must wear league issued, um, clothing to and from games. Okay. Now, is that enforced? Absolutely not. Um, no, we see know. those images of those players arriving again. There's no way that those are all league, league right. enforced clothing. Fascinating. Right. Okay. So, so that there was a similar line to that in, in a, a, you know, a proposal that had come across the table and our players just said, no, like you, you can't make us wear, you know, we're thinking like, you can't make us wear league track suits. Like we're not amateur athletes. Like girls will wear what they want to wear. And they said, no, no, you know, this is standard. This is standard language. It's like, it's not enforced, but you know, it's just standard. It's in every collective bargaining agreement. And we were just like, well, not in this one. And it's funny because that is one of the, the things about this league that has really gained attention and momentum is the walk-in outfits, you know, and the girls love it. They love to um, represent brands that they love. They love to get custom suits made. They love to, you know, it, it shows their personality. Now imagine how Absolutely. dull it would be if every single one of those athletes walked through the hallway with their PWHL tracksuit. Now again, would they have enforced it? I don't know, but that's like the old school thinking is like, we can put this in and not really, not, we're not really going to do it, but are you not going to do it? If you're not going to do it, why are we putting it in? Right. Exactly. No. And it shows how much savvier you all were than the league, frankly, because absolutely, we're talking about this is a commodity spectacle and the performance that you are able to put on even in advance of the game, that's part of the show, right? And so if you can cultivate, and especially in a sport like hockey, honestly, and there's a lot of sports like this, but like a sport where you're wearing so much gear that makes it very difficult for the individual to sort of stand out right in the middle of a game, because you don't really see your face. You don't see anything about the person. So to cultivate a persona is a huge deal, right? In terms of making the league popular, making you faces that people get excited about. It's so misguided of the league to try to conceal that, but it just shows how professional sport is all about control, right? On some level, like there's this desire to control and you are right on the money that what is in the collective agreement matters, right? You cannot trust the word of an employer under any circumstances. It has got to be in the collective agreement. That's mm-hmm. what matters. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's, it's also been fun in women's hockey because we do like the personalities are so varying and different and we represent a lot of different communities and i think how fun is that that you know we always say hockey's for everyone blah blah blah, but we see the same suits walking in and out of the rink it's so fun for me to see um you know carly jackson come in in their suit and their mullet at the same time as you know i'll just stay on the same team like emma malte who's like the pwhl barbie girl like and this is encouraged you can you can be whatever version of yourself here and you can be a great hockey player at the same time. I, I just think it's, it's so fun to experience and I'm glad that, um, you know, we kind of put our foot down on, on that one thing. 
Oh, I, I love that. And honestly, men's hockey is so boring for that. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, like, I'm not, I have to say, like, the, the truth is, the funny thing is, I am not so much a hockey person in general. So I got I to gotta admit that. It's like not my go-to sport. This was like the experience of a Canadian growing up and like not really playing. And so you're surrounded by hockey all the time. And so it kind of made me somewhat alienated by the game. So I'm not like, but, but my general impression as a non like obsessive follower of hockey in general is that men's hockey is among the most boring sports, right? In terms of like, you know, the athletes always have the same clip. They're always going to say the same thing. They're very well media trained. And it's like, you just, there's like a generic quality to it that makes it, I don't know, like not, that may be one of the reasons why the NHL has struggled, frankly, to build a bigger following in the United States. Well, it, it, it kind of begs the question, like, is it control disguised as tradition? You know, exactly. It's, it's just, oh, this is traditional hockey. This is how we do it, you know? And it's at the end of the day, at, at some point, there's somebody sitting at a boardroom table saying, we don't want to look like this, or we do want to look like that. And that trickles down. And, you know, I mean, that's good. That's on them. That's their, that's their culture to, to, you know, look, look at and look through for us. Like what a great opportunity that we get to build something with a, a blank slate. And that was just one of those things like, no, we're, we're not going to try to control, uh, you know, with, of course, with certain parameters, like we're not saying you can just wear anything to the ring. There's a, an image that has to be upheld, but, um, we wanted players to feel free to, to express their personality. So yeah, like I said, that was, that was a really cool thing that we fought hard for, um, that seemed, you know, inconsequential to the league at the time. And now that we've seen kind of the positives come of it, it's, it, that's been pretty rewarding. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great example. Um, all right. So tell me now, where do you need to improve the collective agreement? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the easy go-to would be salaries. Um, and I only say that now because uh, like the margins are off the chart for what we've done in the first, you know, what we're two months in almost. Um, and I think the league would tell you that. I think they would say like, we were surprised by the response. We, they didn't know they're, like I said, they're, they're new to women's hockey, not new to the sports world, but you know, to build anything from ground zero, um, I, the expectation of ticket sales and merch sales and, um, you know, just how well the league would be received. I think was a little bit lower than what we're proving. <laughs> it's, it's funny. I was talking to Tessa Benum the other day, actually. And like, we have such imposter syndrome. We've spent our entire lives listening to nobody wants to watch women's hockey. Nobody yeah. cares about women's sports. And a part of us actually believed that. And so after week one, we're all the home openers, right? Um, I mean, you're, you, there was a part of me admittedly, and I'm ashamed to say, it, but you're waiting for the other foot to drop. Like, okay, week one was great, but now week two, we have no sales, you know, and it's been the opposite. Like week after week, we're seeing more, you know, engagement, more ticket sales, more buzz, more companies reaching out, wanting to get on board, more professional sports, you know, looking at this league being like, man, how did, like, where did this league come from? How did we not, you know, how did we get there? Um, so I think all that to say, if that, continues to trend in the direction it's heading, then, um, you know, my hope is that the league would be willing to revisit, um, you know, the, the numbers that we had originally projected for players. The other thing I will say, so when we built out the, um, 
basically the the bones of of our dream league. And this was literally a pipe dream. We sat down with Deloitte. You know, how would you want to walk into a rink? What what you know, quintessentially, what is the feeling you get when when you go into the rink? What are the the tangible things that you need? Who is there? Who has access? Who does not have access? Like we went through every what well, we thought was everything, and that was in 2019 before global pandemic. By the time we had found the investor group and come back around and shown them this proposal, their initial reaction was great. You know, we, we'd put this all together: dollars and cents, line items. This is what it's going to cost you. They looked at it and said, great, it's going to cost us double than that. No question, barely looking through it, you know? And then after that, it was like, okay, now we need to double it again. They're putting a huge investment into this league to make it a success. So, um, but all that to say, our original kind of like targets for what we had believed, uh, you know, the league would cost was pre-pandemic. And frankly, things had changed in those two, three years. Um, things had changed in the women's sports world. Uh, things had changed economically with everybody and, and cost of living and, um, you know, prices of utilities and gas and all that stuff. So the numbers, you know, we hear the criticism, the numbers are, are low, but again, we're year one, um, starting where some of the other leagues are at in year 10. So the hope is that if the league continues to do well, they would be willing to revisit those numbers. And, um, you know, that's all part of keeping players happy and, and not only happy, but able to continue to have, you know, careers three, four, five, maybe one day, 10 year career after their university um, days are done. Absolutely. And I, I really hope you all keep, you know, just, I hope you, Slam the door on your imposter syndrome and, and stay as ambitious as possible, you know, because when we look at the men's professional leagues in terms of, and this, it's not about the amount of total revenue here. Well, I think what we, we, we should be thinking about the split, the revenue split, right? With the league and what like a league like the NBA gets is a 50% revenue split. That's the amount that players ultimately get in terms of their contracts. And there's all kinds of complications in terms of how that's divided up, right? And those are important questions for players to consider among themselves. Um, but like, if we look at the WNBA, one of the, I think the biggest problem for the players, this is, I'm not criticizing the players. I'm saying what the injustice of the WNBA is that players are, it's been estimated making only about 20%, right. Of the revenue. They've been, they've been making historically only about 20% of the revenue, not 50% of the revenue. And that means basically if we're talking about the rate of exploitation, the rate of exploitation is quite simply higher that mm-hmm. historically in the WNBA than the NBA. And so what I what I, I mean, just have to say, I don't know what your revenue split looks like right now, um, but I hope like that is like the kind of target that you all see for yourselves, that like a number, like a 50% number, that's the thing that you absolutely deserve because you are producing the value, you know? Yes, you needed investors. Yes, you needed, but what you're the ones who are bringing in the fans. You're the reason that the league is so successful and so popular. And at the end of the day, like you are the one who need to be rewarded for that. And, and it honestly, it, it struck um, kind of a thought that I had a conversation at um, NHL All-Star Weekend with um, one of our business ops people. It is so important that athletes understand the business of their sport. Um, and and Amy Shear, who's on the business ops side with the league, said, you know, 
if this is something players are interested in, we would be happy to hold information sessions, educational sessions on how business of sport works, because it's, it's one thing to want, and it's a different thing to really understand where those numbers come from. And frankly, you know, we spend so much time balancing our work and trying to be a professional athlete and this and that up until now, we haven't had the time, but like what a great opportunity for the next generation of players to come in. They're able to focus on being an athlete, learn how the business world works in sport in our sport in particular. Um, you know, because I think that really gives you the agency to control the conversations that you have. And again, you know, I won't be around forever on the PA, the next generation, you know, you can't, you can't become complacent in, in what we have. And I think that we'll see those voices emerge organically as players kind of get their footing in this league, understand it. And probably inherently the same way that I joined the CWHLPA, you know, if something really irks you, really bothers you, um, it takes the right kind of personality to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to join the board. I want to understand better what is happening behind the curtain um, and, and try to change the trajectory of, of the league or of, of the players association. So um, totally. that, that, that day will come hopefully not too soon for me because I still, yeah. <laughs> still want to stay involved. And um, you know, it's, it really is a huge honor to represent the players and um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's such a fun time in women's sports right now. It is, and it's an opportunity because when you're at the beginning, there isn't that sense that this is how it's always been done, right? Like, well, this is what the collective agreement has always been. This is the model. No, you built something new, something different. And it's like, I think that there's there's a way in which it's sort of, of course, it's a new language to learn about the business of the sport, but also like you can see in transitioning between these different leagues and the formation of the league, you can kind of see it unfolding in front of you in a different kind of way that's not naturalized, right? Or, be, or just like a norm or a tradition. And, and that makes it maybe a little bit more accessible almost in terms of learning that business language and seeing where the value is coming from and all of that. Um, and I mean, what you've been saying here, so I, I think we should really center this. Th this is a moment where we are finally seeing how much value there is in women's sport, right? We're seeing it across the board. Um, the NCAA had long, for instance, suppressed the value of women's sports, basically by just selling off the rights for nothing, essentially, to ESPN, to all their championships. Um, they didn't market it. They wouldn't even give the March Madness branding to the women's tournament, right? I mean, they were literally doing almost everything possible to suppress the value. And yet we saw amazing things like the women's volleyball tournament on ESPN at one point drew better ratings than the MLS final. Right. And I mean, that's that's with almost no promotion, no nothing. Right. And yet there's that much demand for the product that is women's sport. And your league is no exception. So you were alluding to this, but I just want for people who don't realize you just had a recent game between Montreal and Toronto that set a women's hockey record with over 19,000 fans. Mm -hmm. Right. The Canadian television numbers on the opening weekend of the league drew over 2.9 million viewers. And you are not even really broadcast, as far as I can understand it, in the United States, which is the market. Right. I mean, like mm -hmm. the U.S. is for all of us in anything. If you're market, if I'm, if I'm trying to sell a book. I want to go to the American market, right? I mean, just there are way more American people. There's way more money there. The scale between Canada and the United States is almost not comparable. So 
the fact that you are putting up numbers like that in Canada is mind-boggling, quite frankly, right? Like 2.9 million viewers in Canada, a country of, you know, some, whatever it is. I, I should know how many people are in Canada right now. I don't know, 35 million people or whatever. <laughs> yes. um, but some, something like that, right? Uh, it, it's, 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 it's wild, quite frankly. Uh, how does that, fe- how does this fan reception feel and how different does it feel from the CWHL days? Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, our, she was our social media manager when I was in Markham, Maria Tassone. Um, and she posted a then and now kind of comparison, you know, six years ago playing on the Brampton Thunder at, um, Century Gardens in Brampton in front of a whopping 50 people, you know, 25 <laughs> of them right, were our parents. Right. And, you know, six years later, this game you know, almost 20,000 people come out to watch. And that's, you know, there was thousands more who wish they could have gotten. I mean, I had friends who yeah, that's got the capacity the queue. of the stadium, right? That's yeah, important like, to keep in mind. That's the capacity. Standing yeah. room. Like I had friends who gotten in the queue an hour before it opened and didn't get tickets. Like the demand is there. And I think one of the things that has really touched me over the last two months is seeing who this has brought out. Like who has, you know, kind of been watching hockey from the fringes and who has like been moved by this league to come out, bring their family. And there's, there's two kind of like, I I guess it's really three storylines, but the first, obviously the young girls, I mean, the next generation who thankfully will grow up not knowing any different than, you know, 20,000 people sold out to watch this women's hockey game. That's their dream now. And they've seen it. They've seen it on TV. They've been there in person. Like what a gift to give to that generation. The next group is the families. I mean, at 35 to $50 a ticket, you can take your family of four or five or six, go down to Toronto, have a nice meal, go to the game, get some swag, you know, go home. And you've spent what it would cost you to go to a lease game for two people, you know, it's very, it's the most accessible that we've seen professional hockey and what a gift it is to, to be able to afford that, to give that gift to your kids, to, you know, have a, have a day out, have a night out on the town and, um, you know, be in that environment, which by the way, the fans at that game, that's the loudest Scotiabank arena has been in many, many years. You know, they're excited, they're energized, they're engaged in the music and dancing and, um, you know, the older crowd drinking and everyone's just, it, it's such a fun place to be. And then, you know, kind of the third stream is the old gals. And um, I was at Real Sports across the street from Scotiabank before the, before the Montreal-Toronto game. And there is these old gal, older gals, I should say, um, you know, probably late fifties, sixties, um, who had come down from Huntsville and they had their, uh, Toronto Maple Leafs jerseys and they had whited out with, you know, white tape, the Maple Leafs portion. So it just said Toronto. And I just thought what, you know, what a cool gift to give a generation of players who were probably told you can never play hockey. You know, or if they did, you know, they changed the broom closets and they fought, you know, they heard every name under the sun and they were ridiculed and made fun of. And like, what a, 
what a full circle moment for those women to be able to go to a professional game and, you know, see the next generation have this dream that for them was probably crushed at such a young age. Um, I just think that that's one of the stories that I, it just, it touches me. I grew up in a family of skaters. Um, you know, my grandmother was a figure skater. My grandpa was a hockey player. And like, I just wish that they could see this. I wish that they could, you know, really take it in because yeah, it's, it's inspiring. It really is. This, this league is, is changing people and, and what they believe is possible. All right. Well, I mean, it's, it's, so it's, it's really, it's inspiring and it's wonderful to hear about that that change in the experience with respect to fans and, and what it means to be embraced in the way that you deserve. I'm actually then curious because in, part, in our earlier conversation, we had a really interesting discussion about the nature of fandom and women's hockey. And at that time, you noted that there was, yes, a really strong connection between players and fans because in a way, as you articulated, like there was a way in which you were in it together, right? Because there was such a precarity to women's hockey as uh, a thing, and especially certainly as a professional sports enterprise, that the fans were deeply invested, the players were invested, and there was a way in which like, there was a like, real kind of almost solidarity between players and fans that really doesn't exist in men's sports in the same way, which is often very the, the kind of dehumanizing dynamic between how fans viewed players. But... On the other hand, there were also, as a consequence, huge demands placed on players, you told us, who were not maybe taken quite seriously enough as professionals. And so there were so many obligations to always be trying to foster fandom that like in a way that like no one would have ever imagined that a men's pro hockey player would like show up at a kid's birthday party. We know the kid wants the player at the party, but like the player's not going to the party because they're like a pro. <laughs> but you were sort of saying, well, no, you all had to go to that party. Like that was sort of an expectation upon you. And as much as you like loved making kids feel good, because don't get me wrong, you're not some kind of Grinch here. Like you like making kids feel good, <laughs> but that's a huge demand. You're working two other jobs. Like how much can a person give is the issue. Would you yeah. say that dynamic has changed at all in the intervening years? Kind of like if we're taking the temperature of where things are at now in terms of that kind of aspect of fandom. I think, I think it has. I think that was actually part of, um, you know, our thinking, it was in the, in the back of our mind when we were kind of building some of the parameters around player access to facilities and stuff like that. I mean, again, I, I want to start this conversation with the fact that we love our fans. We love, you know, how loyal they are, how loud they are, how invested they are. Um, you know, even in our, our personal lives and who we're dating and who, you know, we love that. We love that there is such a strong fan base, but um, you know, at the end of the day, these are professional athletes who are coming to work. And so, and they're good human beings. They are great human beings. So one of the things that, you know, that we've kind of already, uh, identified in one of our markets is that if we have players upstairs signing autographs after the game, it should not be on the players to tell fans when the time is up. You know, if they sign autographs, I'll say for an hour. Um, we need somebody from the league in the queue who says, okay, about roughly here, we're going to have to cut the line off and you send those people home because again, they're great people. Our, our players would stay for 10 hours if there was people lined up to get their autograph. You know what I mean? So it, it falls more on the league, on the, on the team operations to ensure that our players don't have to be the bad guy to say no, because they just won't. 
they won't say no. <laughs> They'll keep signing autographs. Yeah. And then totally. I, it, it's funny that you bring up the, uh, the, the birthday party example, because, uh, Lexi Agia, who's a, an Ottawa PWHL player, um, actually showed up at a, I think she was, you know, 11, 11 year old's birthday. And I thought, Oh my gosh, girl, like, do you know how hard I fought for you not to have to do this? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I think at the end of the day, it's, it, it's, who is it for? You know what I mean? And, um, you know, I did it back in my day because I had built this great connection with this family and, um, they were one of the, the loyal fans who, who were consistently at our games. And, uh, this young girl looked up to us and wanted to be like us. And, um, it, it was nice. It was a nice thing for me to do. I, I wanted to do it. Um, but part of, part of that was also, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, uh, represent the league well i'm trying to show that like um you know we're good people keep coming supporting us bring your friends and family it's 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 not charity but it borders on it <laughs> you yeah. know where yeah. i'm just trying to g- give them the best experience possible so they go to their you know their kids games and say oh my gosh that those brampton thunder girls are just so amazing you guys got to come out and watch you know there's like you carry that weight. Whereas I hope, and I don't know, cause I, I don't really know Lexi, but, um, you know, I hope that she felt good doing that because she is now becoming a face of this league. She's got a great, um, social media presence. Um, you know, she's very active on social media and building a brand for herself. And so I hope she did it. And I hope that she was, she was, you know, touched by being there, touched by the fact that this family and, and these young athletes are so inspired by her. Um, I hope that she got all the rewards that she, she wanted out of that because it's one thing to feel like you did it, you know, as a gift. It's another thing to feel like, Oh my God, I'm just begging you, please bring some more people to our games. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. This has all been, you know, really uplifting. Um, and encouraging and and everything else. It's been a delight to talk to you about all these wonderful developments in women's hockey. But one thing I I think we'd be remiss in not touching on because it's part of the conversation about hockey in Canada right now, it should be part of the conversation, is the national discourse that has emerged about the deeply problematic culture really of men's hockey, right? Exemplified Mm -hmm. by multiple cases of sexual violence perpetrated by national junior team members, among many other issues. Do the problems with hockey culture in Canada, if we're going to call it hockey culture in Canada, extend to women's hockey, or would you characterize that culture as different? Uh, I mean, truthfully, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that question, but I'll answer it in my experience. Yeah, that's Um, great. You know, the culture is, is different, but as we step into the space of professionalism, as we said earlier in our conversation, it's all about power. Um, it's about power dynamics. And, you know, as the PWHPA, we were very careful to bring in people that we make sure that the people we brought in were people that we trusted. And I hope that that precaution continues because, you know, I, I would, I would hate to suggest that this is, you know, because we're professional now we have to be so worried about this. I mean, but this is part of, this is part of our sport. It's a, it's a very dark part of our sport. 
Um, you know, I've, I know of my teammates who have been victims of, of sexual violence in the hockey space. Um, and we have to be so careful to, to protect our players in, in every sense of the word. We've been talking this whole time about their rights as, as workers and as employees. But I mean, above everything is their, their personal safety. Um, and I just, my heart, my heart truly breaks for, for the victims in, in these scenarios. And sometimes they're young women and sometimes they're, you know, boys in these associations who I, I just, it, it is terrible to me that I, I'm so lucky to have had the experience in hockey that I had. I, I feel so blessed that it was about learning life lessons that I should have been learning at the age I was at, not about learning life lessons about sexual predators and violence. I mean, that is just, that's so unfair um, to rob young people of the gift of sport, all for, you know, a very dark individual's sense of control and power. It's, it's heartbreaking to me. And I think that the league as a whole, um, you know, is acutely aware of the fact that protecting not only our players, protecting our staff, protecting the people that we, you know, see on a day-to-day basis is, is top of mind. Um, and I hope that uh, on the flip side, I hope that, if we're able to do that, if we're able to create a space where um, players, staff, fans feel welcomed, included, safe, that that could be something that other leagues could learn from. Because it would be amazing to think that we could change that, but um, you know that's a that's a problem much much larger than um, I think even even our league could tackle alone. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Well, let's let's finish on a positive note here, um, because again, this has been a really a extremely um, positive conversation, and I'm delighted by that. I have a lot of women's hockey players in my current sociology of sport class, um, and it's been delightful to teach them. It's been, you know, this is my first time teaching sport back in Canada because I was at Duke for six years. I was teaching sport all the time, but it was a totally different context. And my first year at UNB, I wasn't teaching a sport class. And so now finally I am getting to teach sociology of sport again. And, and not surprisingly, I have athletes in my class as I would expect um, in any context teaching, teaching sport in university. And it turns out that women hockey players make up a large component of those folks. And again, they've been a delight to teach. And so it, it almost, not that they've asked me to, but almost on their behalf, I want to ask you, what advice or insight do you have for the next upcoming generation of women's hockey players, given the kind of career, I, you're a young person still, but you've had, a, <laughs> you've had a really long, rich career of experiences in this world of women's hockey. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't want it to sound cliche, but you have to, you just have to continue to follow things that, you know, spark you, make you feel alive. I mean, i I kind of fell into sociology. I was just a, a general arts, um, you know, I was undeclared in my first year at Laurier. And um, so I just took everything. I took a little of everything just to see where, where I, I felt the most, you know, passionate. And my worst mark in my first year was in first year Soch. But I was like, <laughs> I just love the conversation. I love, I love learning about, you know, how societies have formed and worked and not worked and the different, you know, 
powers that play into those experiences. And um, so it's funny that, you know, that sociology degree would eventually, you know, lead me to understandings of some of the things that we talked about in our collective bargaining agreement for a professional women's hockey league. Like you could have, I would have, I would have never even dreamed to be in this role. I would have not, it, 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 it was a job that didn't exist when I was young. Right. So I think following the things that make you passionate, um, you know, often lead to the, the places that you should be. And it's, um, again, it, it sounds so cliche and I, you know, maybe I should work for Hallmark next and I can write some <laughs> inspirational cards, but it, it truly is. I mean, I, I joined the PA because I didn't like that my teammates were being treated unfairly. And then the PA turned into the PWHPA because I had these great connections with the CWHL players. And then, you know, I, I brought a perspective to the board that was unique because I wasn't a national team player and I had been working in another job. So that's, you know, all these little things at the same time, following my other passions of, um, you know, I, I pursued construction and I got into firefighting and um, just finding things that, that made me happy. And uh, for those, those athletes in your class, I mean, it is such a great time to be in women's sports as, as you alluded to earlier. And um, one of the things about the league that also makes me happy is seeing how many jobs it's created for people that I was growing up with, or I was friends with, or, you know, literally in some cases and, and figuratively in other senses where it's like, yeah, I've always loved sports, but like, I don't really want to work for the NHL. So I just got into advertising, you know, <laughs> like now there's this great space, so many jobs, a place that's familiar to you, a place that welcomes you, um, you know, whether you're a player or a staff, I just think it's such an exciting time to, to be a young woman in, in, in hockey right now. Amazing. Well, Liz Knox, thank you so much for your time and good luck with everything as the PWHL. Wait, wait a minute. Yeah. Did I get it right? I don't know. Yeah. I'm so scared of the acronym. No. Okay. Well, I'll have to edit that, but, um, all right, let me, let me try this again. <laughs> no worries. Three, two, one. Well, Liz Knox, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Um, as always, it is an immense pleasure to talk to you. And I wish you all the best as the PWHL and the PWHLPA continue to kind of unfold and produce a new world of women's hockey. Well, I appreciate it so much. And uh, yeah, thank you for all you're doing, shaping the young minds of the future. We'll uh, <laughs> look forward to talking to you again soon. 